This is Your Money with Nancy Snedden of BDO, Licensed Insolvency Trustees. The views and opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of this station. Your Money with Nancy Snedden of BDO on VOCM. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Your Money with Nancy Snedden. I am Nancy Snedden. Thanks so much for tuning in today. On today's show, Canadians, including many here in Newfoundland and Labrador, are really struggling with affordability. They're struggling to make ends meet, and many are seeking advice on how to better manage their money and make it go further. So if you're among them, our guest today has some advice for you. He's an award-winning personal finance expert, public speaker, blogger, and contributor for many media sources, including the Global Mail, Money Sense, the Toronto Star. His website is moneywehave.com and his, it's been around since 2014 and is a go-to source for many when it comes to personal finance management. Barry Troy, welcome back to the show and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be back. So before we get into it, because uh, I know we've got a lot to talk about today, maybe mm-hmm. you could share with our listeners a little bit about your background. Yeah, it, it's a bit unusual, uh, but I'm a formally trained journalist slash TV director. So I used to work in television for about 15 years here in Toronto. Um, and But the way I got into personal finance was, was kind of random. Uh, essentially, my old job announced a lot of layoffs. And normally when there's layoffs, people have to end up working more. Uh, but because of my position, I was, like I was saying, I was a television director, they eliminated one of my shows. So they still needed me to do the other show, but I technically have less work to do. And so that honestly created a lot of free time. Uh, A lot of people would be jealous. It sounds great, but I probably had four hours of downtime a day. And sure, I had to prep some other things, but it probably only took me 20 minutes. So uh, I just started researching things while some of my peers would go to the mall or, or, you know, work out. Uh, I just kind of like, oh, you know what? Maybe I should start a blog just for fun. And I was trying to figure out what should I write about? You know, my, my parents had given me a lot of personal finance knowledge. I was still, you know, I don't want to date myself, but I guess I was in my mid early 30s at the time. There was still a lot to learn. Uh, as I started to read more about this stuff, I realized it was really easy and I just wanted to, to share it. And that's kind of where uh, the blog moneywehave.com came from. And since then, uh, I, I call myself a financial educator. I don't sell any products. Uh, I don't give any financial advice. I just like to educate people. Uh, I've had a great opportunity to share my wisdom on many platforms. Like you said, my biggest one right now is the Globe and Mail, a monthly column, which is kind of nice. And I appear on TV across the country. So, so that's where I'm at now. Yeah, and it's so important. I like the distinction you're making, you're making there, right, where you're there to sort of educate people and, and not necessarily tell them what they should be doing, but giving them the information that they need to sort of look at their own situation and their finances and, and make sure that they're talking to the right people and, and doing the right things. Well, we know that high inflation and rising interest rates have really taken a toll on the finances of Canadians and, of course, including those in Newfoundland and Labrador. And household budgets are really tight. Consumers are looking to make their money go further, and some are even looking at ways to grow their earnings. And I know from our recent video affordability index that nearly 3 in 10 Canadians at 31% acknowledge they would take on extra work to have more financial independence. One quarter are considering taking on a side hustle or gig work. A quarter at 26% of Atlantic Canadians are considering taking on extra work to cover costs. And a quarter at 24% of younger Canadians, those 18 to 34, have already done that. According to a recent study, the number of Canadians working in the gig economy doubled in the past year. 
So currently just over one quarter of Canadians at 28%. That's up from 13% in 2022. And a majority of seven at 74% of these workers say it's a side hustle in addition to their primary source of income. And reflected the BDO affordability index, almost two thirds at 63% say they took on a side hustle due to the rising cost of living. So Barry, you're an expert when it comes to the gig economy. And you and I have discussed this before on the show. So for listeners out there who are looking to grow their income in the gig economy, what's the best way for them to do it? And what advice can you share with them um, if they are considering entering into the gig economy or taking on a side hustle to supplement their income? You know, the first thing I say is um, realize that a gig economy, a side hustle can literally mean anything. Uh, So some people, you know, picking up extra hours at work or overtime, they consider that side income because technically it's it's outside of the regular normal hours. Or even having a second job, working part-time retail, part-time restaurant, bartending, whatever, that is also technically a side hustle. Um, But uh, I tell people to look at your individual skills first to see what you can offer. So for example, let's say you're a computer programmer. Uh, Can you go online and charge someone more to pay you for your services, right? Uh, Or even if you've got some graphic design skills, that's possible. Uh, But for a lot of people, the most obvious thing for them is, you know, doing food deliveries through Uber Eats, uh, uh, DoorDash, and and all those other platforms, because that's just a quick way to get into the system to earn additional income. Uh, But at the same time, there's so many pros and cons. There's a lot to consider when you want to consider a side hustle. Yeah, and so that leads me to my next question, I think, right? So if people want to get started, what should be taken into consideration when it comes to choosing or even starting a side hustle? I would say how easy it is to begin with, right? So so we're talking about food delivery. If you've already got a car, maybe you can do it like that way. But they also do bikes, right? Uh, I mean, what I'm getting at here is you don't want to incur costs to start a side hustle unless you know you're going to be making money right away. That's why I, I refer back to what we're saying, that, you know, maybe just picking up more hours or getting uh, another part-time job or a part-time job. That's just the easiest way. Uh, but at the same time, you want to do a lot of research to kind of figure out where, where you want to go. Like think about those skills you have. What can you actually market? What are the websites? Could it be Upwork? Uh, could it be local listings, right? Sometimes, uh, especially in smaller communities, you can get a lot of side hustles for relatively cheap in the sense that like you don't need a lot, lot of skills to do it. So uh, websites such as TaskRabbit, it, you're literally looking for people to help pick up groceries for seniors, right? Or to walk dogs, to hang up paintings. These small little tasks that some, some older people or some younger people who aren't familiar with would rather pay someone to do it. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. You just need to do some additional research before you get started. Yeah, and I think that's the key, right? Make sure that you're doing your homework so that you know, you know, what, if any cost there's going to be to start up, what the skills that, that you're going to need, what the need is, right, in your local community. Is it going to be a worthwhile and get you to uh, what you're looking for from your side hustle. And we know that taking on a side hustle gig work can certainly bring in extra income at a time when so many are struggling to keep up with rising costs. I think that's why the surveys are showing so many people are Mm -hmm. looking to do it. And that's definitely a pro, but there are some other pros among them, certain deductions, right? That can help them at tax time. So what deductions can they claim and how important is it for them to keep the supporting documentation like receipts and, and so on? You know, deductions sound great, but one thing to clear up right away, it's not like you can deduct everything and then you get 
write everything off. It's just funny because that's just a term that's thrown out uh, quite often. Like, oh, I can write it off. It's, it's costing you nothing. Well, it's technically costing you something still. It's just costing you less. But generally speaking, anything related to your business can be deducted as a business expense. And the government has a great website that really outlines everything you can do. Um, for example, say you've got clients and you need to entertain them, you take them out for dinner, you can technically expense that meal, but you can only expense 50% of it. So it's not like you're getting 50% back, do you know what I mean? It's like you can claim that as a business expenses and then you'll be taxed less. Um, but you know, we talked about being a graphic designer, you could possibly uh, claim parts of your rent or your mortgage, your utility bills, because it's related to your computer. And you could claim the cost of your computer as a, as a capital expense. And then there are other things. We talked about being an Uber driver. You could claim some, some maintenance on your vehicle, some gas mileage, uh, some cost of travel. So there's a lot of different things you can claim. And it just goes back to what we were saying earlier about doing your research, uh, make sure you know what you can deduct. And of course, have a detailed expense log. So whether that be saving all of your receipts physically, taking pictures of all your receipts, you want to have some kind of detailed organization system uh, because if the CRA ever audits you, you need to provide the evidence of receipts and, and they will audit you if they, they suspect anything suspicious. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, it, it's so easy today for people with side hustles to keep those types of records because, you know, you can, you know, have a folder and, and put the physical paper in there. But with technology, I mean, most people have um, a tablet or uh, an iPhone or, you know, Android phone and, and it has a camera, right? So taking the picture and then you've got that sort of permanent um, record. You don't need to worry about um, having the paper all, um, all together. But I think one of the cons, and, and you know, there's lots of pros with the gig economy, there's always cons when there's pros, is that you do need to pay additional taxes on the earnings that you have, right? So to your point, the expenses will be the deduction against the income you earn, but you're still going to have to pay tax on the additional income. So what are the tax implications that people need to, wear of, to be aware of? So as an example, you know, when it comes to filing their taxes, what do they need to understand? Yeah, so the first thing to understand is when you have a side hustle, you have to pay your taxes. Some people just think, it's like, oh, it's, it's uh, I don't have to pay taxes on this. I don't know why they would think that, but some people do think that, right? Uh, yeah. So the easiest way to look at it is like this. Any income you make from a side hustle is additional income. It's no different from working overtime or having a second job we were talking about. So you're taxed at your marginal tax rate, right? So, you know, I'm just making this number up. If you're at the 30% tax bracket, you bring in some additional income, uh, that additional income would be taxed at 30%. However, if your side hustle is very successful, you might push yourself into a higher tax bracket. So then certain amounts over those thresholds would be at a higher tax bracket, maybe 40%, right? And of course, one thing that people need to be aware of, if you have a side hustle and you earn more than $30,000 a year, you must register for GST slash HST immediately and start charging it. And if you're an Uber driver, you actually have to register for it before or you even can join the platform. So again, there's a lot of rules to be aware of. You want to make sure you're setting aside that money when you do the math, if you're charging taxes and then putting aside money for your own taxes, that could be like 40%, 50% that you need to put away. Uh, but in the end, no matter what, you're still making more money. So it could be worth it. 
Absolutely. And you'll, but you do want to do your homework and, and you can get that information online about what the tax brackets are. You can do an estimate on what your income is now, what you're expecting to earn to see where you're going to fall. And if you should be taking additional funds to put aside to be able to pay your taxes, that's really great advice. Well, Barry's not only an expert on the gig economy. He's also an expert when it comes to choosing the right credit card. So he's going to talk to us about that when we come back. Please stay with us. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Your Money here on VOCM. I'm your host, Nancy Sneddon, Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO Canada right here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So joining me today is Barry Choi. He's an award-winning personal finance expert, public speaker, blogger, and finance writer contributor for many media sources, including the Global Mail and Money Sense. Barry's been sharing his expertise in financial advice and how you can make your money go further during this time of economic uncertainty. But I think an emerging trend that we're seeing is consumers trying and make ends meet is their reliance on credit cards. According to Equifax Canada, there is a growing demand among Canadian consumers for credit cards. Applications and usage is reaching historic highs. Now, I do caution listeners who are relying on their credit to make ends meet because this debt can quickly get out of control and certainly not something that I would recommend that in the long term you're supplementing your income with this expensive source of credit. But when used wisely and managed appropriately, a credit card can certainly help bridge finances in times when money is tight. But again, as long as you're able to manage and pay down and pay off this debt. So something else to take into consideration when applying for a credit card is finding the right card for you because not all cards are created equal. And Barry, for anyone who visits your website, moneywehave.com, it's clear you're an expert when it comes to choosing the right card for your needs. And that is what I wanted to talk about right now. So how to choose the best credit card for you because we know there's several cards out there to choose from, some no fee, low interest, cash back, there's all kinds of different rewards cards, which can be anything from groceries to travel. So what advice do you have for listeners? What should they be taking into a consideration when it comes to selecting the right credit card? Oh, my goodness. Where do we begin? <laughs> I can talk about credit cards all day long, but I like that you, you kind of named a few things first. So the first thing you want to look at is the type of credit card. Uh, so that could be student credit card, rewards credit cards, low interest credit cards, credit cards for uh, people who have, have low credit scores, right? And then once you've decided that, quite often there's rewards associated with those type of credit cards. So then you got to be like, okay, do I want cash back? Do I want travel rewards? What kind of travel rewards? Do I want hotel rewards? Do I want airline rewards? Do I want general travel rewards? And then, of course, in addition, you need to look at each individual card and what benefits do they have? Do they have travel insurance, mobile device insurance, airport lounge access? And then, of course, there's always those vitals. What is the interest rate, right? So, so there's so many considerations. You just can't go for the first one. And, and admittedly, it can be very overwhelming. Uh, most people will typically just go to their first bank and just take their or whatever credit card is, is uh, recommended to them. But there are literally, you know, dozens of banks out there and there are hundreds of credit cards. So there, there's one credit card that's perfect for everyone. You just got to figure out which one it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and to your point, like every bank has different credit cards. There's also, so I, I, I don't know if non-bank credit card providers is the right 
um, name, but you know, you've got the MBNAs and Capital Ones and Canadian mm-hmm. Tire and American Express. Like, there's all kinds of, of different um, providers out there. So, how you know how do people go about considering, for example, do I need a no fee low interest credit card? Is that the right answer for me? Or who stands to benefit the most from a cash back uh, credit card? You know, the way I look at it is first, the, the obvious thing is, is do you keep a balance on your credit card every single month? If the answer is yes, then you 100% should have a low interest credit card no matter what. Rewards don't matter because if you're paying, you know, 20% interest, uh, the rewards you're working, you're earning, even if it's at 10%, which is rare, uh, you're still still losing money, right? But at least with the low interest credit card, you might be only be paying 9% to say 16%. It's it's a little bit better and it'll help you, but it's quite often it's it's a temporary solution to get you to pay down your debt, right? And as far as no fee credit cards, they're they're obviously great for people who just don't want to spend an annual fee, right? But at the same time, a lot of credit cards come with great benefits that are worth more than an annual fee. You know, one American Express credit card I personally love is the American Express Platinum card. It's got an annual fee of $699. It's actually going up to $799 later this month. But it comes with so many benefits for me personally. Just to be clear, it's like I'm able to take advantage of those benefits. It pays for itself. Uh, so again, when you're looking at credit cards, figure out if the benefits you're getting are worth more than an annual fee, then it might be worth paying an annual fee. That said, if you're if you're hurting on cash, you just your cash flow is limited, go for a no fee card. Nothing wrong with that. And then when it comes to cash back credit cards, I always tell people, think about why you're collecting cash back. If you just want simple rewards, cash back is great. That said, each cash back credit card has different payment dates. Some pay out annually, some pay out, you know, monthly. Uh, they might issue a check. It might go right into your savings account. You could use it as a statement credit. So even though cash back is a very simple type of rewards program, it still requires research. Yeah, for sure. And you always want to read the fine print to make sure you understand if there is an annual fee, when you're going to get your rewards, how you can use them. Is there any restrictions, right, so that you know what you're signing up for? Because, of course, the the simple ads that you might see online or that you get in the mail give the highlights but may not have all the ins and outs, right? So you want to make sure you're reading and really understanding what you have. Mm-hmm. I think, I think too, um, Barry, for consumers out there who are getting additional credit or applying for credit cards right now as a supplemental income, um, it's likely not their only card. So should consumers only have one credit card? You know, it depends on how you look at it. Let's be clear. Credit cards aren't income, right? They are our debt. If you're using them uh, and you're not paying the full balance, you're in debt. Now, if you're paying off your bills all the time and in full, having more than one credit card, yes, in my opinion, you should, you should probably have two or three, right? So for some people, that may sound crazy excessive, but uh, let's just go through the basics. Sometimes your credit card just doesn't work, right? For whatever reason. Maybe, maybe uh, there was a fraud alert and you didn't know it's not working. Maybe uh, that merchant doesn't accept that credit card specifically, like Visa, MasterCard, or American Express, right? Some merchants just don't accept every type of card. That is a fact. You want to have at least one backup card. So if you've got a Visa card, you should have a backup MasterCard or American Express just in case, right? Uh, And at the same time, it's funny because sometimes having an extra credit card can actually help your credit. 
it gives you a different type of credit. It increases your credit limit, which in theory would lower your credit utilization ratio, which is one of the factors that affects your credit score. So having more than one credit card can be beneficial if you're using them um, well, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, and I think that's that's the main message, right, is that it's okay to have additional credit. You just need to make sure you're managing and using it wisely. You're not, you know, maxing out or getting close to the maximum on both cards. That's actually going to have the negative impact on your credit score but mm-hmm. to your point if you're if you're using them and paying them off it's actually going to increase um how your credit report looks to, to potential lenders. But we also know, Barry, that there are common credit card mistakes people are making when it comes to using them. So can you speak a little bit to these mistakes and maybe offer advice on how listeners can avoid them? Yeah, we've already talked about the number one mistake already, which is carrying a balance. Uh, if you can avoid it, you, you want to avoid carrying a balance at all costs because obviously you're going to be paying interest. Uh, another new thing that has come up with a lot of credit cards is installment plans. I'm not necessarily really saying avoiding them is the way to do because when you actually look at the fine print, it's actually decent. A lot of them have no interest. You can pay over a couple months. Uh, but again, it's the same theory in the sense that as long as you're paying things in full, uh, you're okay. But at the same time, you know, those installment plan, plans encourage you to spend more, which is kind of why I, I don't want to call it a mistake, but it's something you don't want to get into too much. I would say another big mistake that a lot of people do, and we discussed this briefly, is hanging on to like your original credit card, the one that your bank offers you right away. Uh, it obviously makes sense for people to sign up for a credit card where they do their day-to-day banking, but with so many options out there, when you actually start researching, you're like, this credit card is a lot better. You know, Let me give you this example that I love ta- sharing with a lot of people. My dad came to Canada in uh, like the mid-70s, and he's still using the same credit card that he signed up for back in the day. This is like, you know, more than 40 years and and he's using an Air Miles credit card and it's fine, but he's only claimed uh, car washes for 40 years. And then when I tell him I'm claiming free hotels, uh, business class flights, he doesn't understand why. And I keep telling my dad, it's like, yeah, because you've never changed your credit card. Like there are just better rewards programs. And again, it depends on the individual person. Uh, So that is a huge mistake. Uh, And of course, even though we talk about points and how much I love them, hanging on to your points forever, it's not a good way to effectively manage your credit cards because those points can be devalued at any single time. So it's in your best interest to use them because credit card points, loyalty points, it's like a currency. It has a real value to it. Absolutely. And that's why you, you're using the credit card you are because of the rewards, right? So if you're not taking advantage of them, then having the card is kind of moot, right? And you could have a different card maybe with no fee and, and lower interest if you're not taking advantage of the rewards. So I think that's that's some really great advice. Well, just as you shop around for the best credit card to meet your needs, if you're looking to grow your money and reduce your monthly costs, you may also want to consider where you're banking and the banking products that you're using. So we're going to get into that when we come back. Please stay with us. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back. You're listening to Your Money with Nancy Sneddon, Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO Canada right here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So today's focus is advice on how you can manage your money and make it go further. And my guest is an expert on the topic. Barry Choi is an award-winning personal finance expert, public speaker, blogger, and finance writer contributor for many media sources 
says, including the Globe and Mail and Money Sense. So Barry, before the break, you shared some great advice, I think, on choosing the right credit card and the things that you need to consider and the things that will meet your needs and give you the best rewards. So as you shared with our listeners, understanding their needs, researching and shopping around can pay off. And let's face it, in this time of tighter household budgets and rising costs, every dollar and every cent really counts. So if you're looking to trim costs and make more on your money, you may want to consider where and how you're banking. So having the right banking products is crucial to your finances in the long run. And Barry, I have no doubt that there are many listeners out there who have just two accounts, a savings account and a checking account. But there are other accounts that can grow your money faster and accounts and banks that can save you money, especially when it comes to service charges and fees. So what is your advice? Maybe we'll start with the basic question of what should you take into consideration when choosing the right bank? Well, the funny thing is, and this kind of applies to credit cards, like you said, is a lot of people end up with the same bank account that they had as a child. So, you, you know, your parents set you up with a bank account, uh, and then you become an adult, and then they recommend you another bank account, and you just go with it, and you don't take the time to research anything else. And bank accounts is really interesting in the sense that they can actually be very different from bank to bank. So, yes, you will always have your standard checking and savings account, but depending on where you bank, they'll give you different features and different costs. And even though every single bank account uh, from the big six banks have similar costs, some banks, if you keep a minimum balance within the bank's account, they waive the annual, uh, the monthly fee. Whereas other banks, yeah, you could keep that minimum amount, but they might only give you a rebate. So you're still paying a, a monthly fee. And so, so I really think it, it's worthwhile to research the different bank accounts available because sometimes you realize like, okay, yes, I have to keep a minimum amount but then I'm saving so much money in all the other services. Uh, the tricky part for a lot of people is keeping that minimum balance because, you know, $5,000, whatever, or $2,500 is not a small amount. Uh, so if you're going to stick with a traditional bank, I would always say, again, research every single bank account. But what's really interesting in the last few years or last five or six years, I guess, is there's so many more online banks available these days. And they promote no-fee banking where you're literally paying no fee, no monthly fees, right? No transaction fees. But the thing is, with these accounts, they don't have physical locations. So you got to consider what are you looking for in a bank and what are you willing to pay for it? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because you do see all kinds of ads, you know, whether it's online or, or, or TV ads, what have you, where all these um, banks are popping up and there is no fees and it can look really attractive, especially if you're struggling with your cash flow, you can't maintain the minimum balance to get a reduction in your fee at your, your own bank. But you do want to consider, are you going to be comfortable with not being able to go to a bricks and mortar location, right? Because you're, that is not going to be an option for you with this online banking, but for many people, it is a great alternative. So Barry, what advice can you share with listeners when it comes to selecting the right banking products for their needs? So let's talk about some of the more common accounts and what listeners should be considering, or, or I guess looking into when it comes to checking accounts, savings accounts, there's high interest savings accounts, and also retirement accounts. Well, this one's a little bit trickier because I would say the number one thing is, is don't be loyal. <laughs> you gotta be like a mercenary in a sense that see what's available. Banks are always having promotions. They want you to switch over. They'll literally give you hundreds of dollars. They'll give you an iPad. Because the thing is, once you switch over, most people are lazy. They don't want to switch their banking all over again. That's how banks get you. But like I was saying, every bank account is different. 
So the number one thing you want to look at is obviously the monthly fee, right? What are you getting with for that annual fee or monthly fee rather? Because a very basic account might only give you a few transactions. And to be clear for listeners, a bank transaction is considered anything where money is taken out of your account. So if you're withdrawing money on a regular basis, 10 transactions a month is not a lot, right? Especially if you use debit instead of credit, you've got multiple bills you got to pay. That's why there's a lot of bank accounts that have unlimited transactions, but those cost you about $30 a month. And that's where I think some accounts, you know, will waive that fee if you keep them in a balance. So that applies to checking accounts. For savings accounts, my goodness, uh, traditional banks, a savings account is a joke. Interest rate is so minimal. They, they're like, oh, if you have like $100,000, then we'll give you a little bit of a higher rate. It's like, who's going to put $100,000 in the bank just, just for fun, right? They're not going to invest that money. Uh, but we talked about high interest savings accounts with digital banks. This is where it gets really interesting because there's almost like uh, a constant battle whenever the Bank of Canada announces a new interest rate. Everyone's like, who's going to raise the rates first? Who's going to raise it? So some banks offer 4% interest rate. Online banks, some have like kept their rates lower at 2.5%. But, you know, it, again, it depends on the type of bit service you're looking for. If they've been consistent, maybe you're happy. But some people are more than happy to chase those interest rates because they want to maximize the interest that they're getting paid. No, absolutely. And especially in times like this, right, that's what we're talking about. How can people increase the money and make their money work hard? I, you know, Patty Lowe Reed says you work hard for your money. Let's have your money work hard for you. And I love that, right, because it, it is so important. And so many people do open up a savings account because that's that's where their checking account is. They don't really know what they're earning, if they're earning anything. Just They just know it's somewhere where they're saving, putting savings away. But it is important to look at where you can make money on your money, right? And, and if it's as simple as opening up a separate account at a different bank, but you're going to be able to earn a, additional interest on that, then it is worth at least investigating, right, to see what uh, the ins and outs are. But we know a lot of banks do have promotion around customer loyalty. Um, do you think it's wise, though, to have all your money tied to one financial institution, or should consumers be looking at more than one bank to ensure their needs are met, like we've been saying? You know, it really depends on the individual. Obviously, keeping all your money in a single bank, whether that be a high-interest savings account, uh, RSP accounts, uh, tax-free savings accounts, or whatnot, uh, it's easy to just have one login, right? But some people are obviously worried about consumer protection. Uh, Canadian Deposit Insurance Protection uh, Insurance only covers up to $100,000 per eligible account, and some people just have a lot of savings. So, yeah, you know, again, it really depends on the type of person you are. I personally have do my day-to-day -day banking at a big bank because I use a lot of their services. Like I said, I, I keep them in on balance. They give me a free credit card. They give me a safety deposit box, free checks, even though people barely use checks, although my condo insists on me giving them now and then. Uh, so I literally have this account just so I can pay off my condo board, right? Uh, but it's, it's for my savings, I have a different bank for my investments because they offer lower fees. And then uh, for my high-interest savings account, I use an online bank, which is connected directly to my regular bank because they offer a high interest rate. So, so to me, I see the benefits in using more than one bank, but at the same time, some accounts, I do like to keep it consolidated, even though it may not be the best value, if you want to call it that 
just because sometimes simplicity is, is worth more than the, the money you're bringing in. Yeah, it's about weighing, right, what's going to work best for you and maybe getting some advice around it, right? There's no harm in asking some questions, right, to some professionals around what you should be considering, doing some research online, right? Your website is a great place for people to look and, and, and sort of consider all this stuff. So how can it save the money, right, or more importantly, grow their money? Is it is it simply looking at where you're going to get the highest rate of interest, like a high interest savings account? You know, when it comes to strictly banking products, yes, uh, we're talking about savings, high interest savings accounts. Whoever's got the highest interest rate will make you the most money. But, you know, I don't want to get into investing too much. But the idea is if you want your money to grow, you're going to have to invest it. And that's a whole nother ballpark where, where you need to do some additional research. Fortunately, there's a lot of great resources, resources online. There's professionals that you can hire to help you invest your money. Uh, but again, you, you can't necessarily trust the first thing that you're told. You really need to do the research and understand what you're paying for and what it means to invest your money because it's not something where you just put in your money and you, you expect things to happen overnight. Uh, it takes time. No, absolutely. And I think having an annual meeting with your bank, right, even if you, you, know, you don't have any loan renewals or anything like that that you need to meet with them with, but just talking about, so this is the bank account I have now. What other options do you have? Is there anything that could be saving me additional fees? Is there a way that I could be earning additional money, right? Because they're not always, they have a lot of customers, right? They're not reaching out to everyone to let them know any changes that have occurred. So it's a great idea at least once a year to reach out to the bank and talk to them about the products that you are using there and if there's something that you could be getting a better benefit from or, or saving money by uh, using, using, even if it's transferring the account from one to another within that same bank. So we've had a lot of great advice uh, today, but Barry has even more straight ahead. Please stay with us. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. You're listening to Your Money on VOCM. I'm Nancy Snedden, Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO Canada, right here in Newfoundland and Labrador. My guest today is Barry Choi. He's an award-winning personal finance expert, public speaker, blogger, and finance writer, contributor for many media sources, including the Global Mail and Money Sense. So, Barry, you've been sharing a lot of great advice with our listeners today on how they can make their money go further. And with the affordability challenges that so many are facing during these uncertain economic times, we all can stand to benefit from looking at these things. And we've covered a lot in this show, but there's one topic I still want to touch on with you. You've written about this and, and have been interviewed by many media outlets on the topic, and that's tipflation or tip creep. I've been hearing so much about it in different conversations with coworkers and family and, and friends. And I want to mention that we have a great article as well on this uh, under the advice section on our BDO website. So just go to bdodebt.ca and click on advice. Since the end of the pandemic and since services started up again, it seems as though Canadians are tipping more than ever. And in fact, an Angus Reid survey on behalf of Restaurants Canada suggests that nearly half of the population of 44% are tipping. So what's your response to this statistic? You know, I think uh, tipflation is, is exactly what you said. It's, it's happened coming out of the pandemic and I think it's fair to say that a lot of people who depend on tips work in the service industry and without them, I don't know how we would have survived the pandemic. You know, they were working in restaurants, they were providing services. So that's why people were very generous with their tipping. Um, but for it to carry on to other industries, you know, you'll see tips 
from my auto mechanic. Like, why am I tipping my auto mechanic? I, I just paid you like a couple hundred dollars an hour to fix my car, right? Like, you don't need a tip for that. Uh, so, so I do think in general, uh, for a lot of Canadians, um, the old 10% is now 15%. And if you're really happy with the service now, the old 20% is now 25%, right? Uh, I think a lot of people are just hurting because everyone's feeling inflation and they're like, well, why am I not getting a tip for the work I do regardless of what you what you do for a profession? Um, and I just think overall, it's, it's, is it getting out of control? I think it is to an extent when you see a terminal that says defaults the tip at 18%. Or one time I went to a restaurant, it was during the film festival last year, so it was about a year ago. And obviously this is a restaurant that expected a lot of international people. And on the bill, it said it, it said uh, 21% is a standard tip in Toronto. And this was clearly not true, but they're trying to take advantage of people, right? Uh, at least that's right. what I felt. So I think the bigger problem is, is tipping the way that needs to go in the sense that is staff being paid enough, right? Are restaurants paying Because there's a lot of countries, a lot of cultures where tipping is just not a thing, but you don't ever hear them complaining about it, right? Yeah, it's true. And it, go, it does go to that, right? Like, so is is there a good enough or high enough salary from where they're working that um, they can maintain a cost of living regardless of the level of tips they're getting? Or is that really their main uh, source of income and that's what they're depending upon? And you're right. Years ago, a 10% tip for service was acceptable. And then that moved up to 15%. I think today it can go to 20 and in, in some cases, 30%. And of course, this is a day of technology. Everyone is tapping. Right. So consumers mm-hmm. feel even more pressure, I think, to tip because they're prompted to do so automatically when they're paying by debit and credit. And the prompts are being found in more and more dawning establishments. And like you said, it's it's, it's not a 15 percent option. It's an 18 percent minimum. And I think important to also keep in mind, you know, you should be considering when you can actually click that custom tip amount and add your own percentage or add your own amount, because if you're simply pressing the 18 percent or the 21 percent, that tip is being calculated on the tax, right? It's being calculated mm-hmm. on the entire bill, not the pre-tax amount. So there's so much to consider, right? I think the rise in expectation and the rise in the expected tip amount may be a reason Canadians are getting tired of inflation. A more recent survey by Angus Reid on the topic shows 8 in 10 at 83% of Canadians feel too many places are asking for a tip. So let's talk a little bit about this. Should consumers feel pressured to tip? I don't think anyone should feel pressured to do anything, especially when it comes to tipping. Uh, I think it's a bit silly that, you know, if you're out somewhere and someone tips higher than you, that you should be obligated to do the same thing. And we talked about certain industries, you know, like my auto mechanics, like why am I tipping them when I'm already paying for a service? Right. Uh, I, I do feel like a lot of these companies, they're like, well, we might as well put it in. If one person says yes, then it's a bonus for them. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I do acknowledge that I do think perceptions have changed in general and how tipping is viewed in Canada. Uh, and, and it's not like it's going to go away. So it's something we got to get used to. But at the same time, you got to tell yourself, like, what are you comfortable with? And, and you talked about earlier how 
tapping, tipping, you, you know, I don't know about you, but I find it really difficult these days to find the zero tip, right? Like some places like, listen, I'm not going to tip no matter what, but trying to find like, like zero dollar tip, it's like, you got to push like four different things, right? So, so mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes they make it overly complicated and I'm like, maybe it's just me, right? No, it's, it's true. The, the machines do make it more difficult. It's, it's inclined to have you uh, tip. But like we were saying, it's important to look at what you're tipping and what that tip is based on. So in your opinion, should tips be calculated or awarded based on the total bill or calculated pre-tax? Pre-tax always. This shouldn't even be a debate. You know, I'm sure yeah. servers, <laughs> servers, people in the service industry will tell you differently, but that's because they're getting a bigger tip. Uh, and that, that makes no sense, right? To me, and again, I'm not saying people don't deserve tips. There's, there's my, my father worked in the service industry for his entire career. He was a low-level employee, but he was able to have uh, a middle-class life, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for people who work in the service industry. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, I, I just hope that these people who are getting the tips are is actually going to them because, you know, sometimes, you, you know, you talk to people who work in certain industries, like, oh, yeah, our tips are split even though like a management takes a cut, even though they're bringing the profit. So, so to me, it's, it's, it can be very complicated, but tipping is, is getting out of hand in, in general. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I, I'm someone who does press the custom tip. Now, I'm, I feel like I am a, a generous tipper, but I always calculate it myself based on the pre-tax amount. I never hit just the percentage <laughs> that comes up on the machine. <laughs> That's just yeah. <laughs> so, Barry, before we get to final thoughts, is it ever acceptable not to leave a tip? Oh, I think it's totally fine to not leave a tip in certain situations, right? And But it really depends on what's going on. Like, listen, if you go to a restaurant, the food was awful, the service was awful, then yeah, leaving a zero tip is perfectly fine in my opinion, right? Uh, and sometimes, you know, I hate to say it, but if I'm going to a coffee shop, I am not going to tip if someone's literally handing me a coffee, right? Uh, that said, if it's a small business place, then I will consider it. But at the same time, you have to think about it. It's like, obviously, inflation has gone up. It's, it's affected a, a lot of people. And I, I will admit that, you know, if you're going to increase uh, a drink by like a dollar when inflation is only at 10%, of course, there are other costs involved. I might be inclined to tip less or, or not at all, but that's just me. And, and everyone's got to look at it in their own individual situation. Yeah. And I think that's the important point, right? You need to do what you're comfortable with. Um, don't feel pressure, right? And watch your own cash flow, watch your own situation, because if you can't afford to leave that extra amount, um, then you shouldn't be because you're putting your own finances uh, at risk, right? So there's a lot, a lot to consider. And like you said, you want to look at the level of service you got and where you are and what you're getting and, and all those things. Well, Barry, it's been really great having you on the show today. We've covered a lot of topics, but if you could leave our listeners with a final thought today, what would it be? You know, regardless of your finances, what you're looking to, you need to do additional research because these days there's so many great resources and products out there that quite often the first thing you're offered is probably not the best thing for you. Yeah, that is some really great advice. And there's so many great websites out there that you can do research. You know, you always want to talk to a professional, I think, when it comes to your finances to make sure you're getting advice on your personal situation. But do the research, know what questions to ask. Um, you know, FCAC has a great website, CPA Canada. Video Debt Solutions has a, a lot of great stuff on its website. And, of course, Barry, if you can leave uh, your website uh, for people, if they wanted to get some advice from you, reach out. What's the best way for them to do that? Uh, my website is moneywehave.com. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, Barry underscore Choi. 
great. Well, thanks again for joining me today. No problem. Anytime. And also thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And remember, I always want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question or topic that you'd like me to cover here on Your Money with Nancy Snedden, you can email me at yourmoney@bdo.ca or give me a call at 800-563-8337. Until next week, I'm Nancy Snedden. Stay safe and be well, everyone. If you have a question or comment, send an email to yourmoney@bdo.ca. This has been Your Money with Nancy Snedden of BDO, License Insolvency Trust trustees on your VOCM.